Chapter 6, Part 3 of Pioneer Work in Opening the Medical Profession to Women by Elizabeth Blackwell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 6 England Revisited, 1858 In the full tide of our medical activity in New York, with a growing private practice and increasing hospital claims, the great catastrophe of civil war overwhelmed the country and dominated every other interest. The first shot at Fort Sumter aroused the whole North, and the assassination of Lincoln enlisted the indignant energy of every Northern woman in the tremendous struggle. As the deadly contest proceeded, and every town and village sent forth its volunteers to the fearful slaughter of civil war, the concentration of thought and action on the war dwarfed every other effort. The war was essentially a rebellion by a portion of the states for the maintenance of slavery. To us, nourished from childhood on the idea of human freedom and justice, the contest became of absorbing interest. Though our American friends often reproached us as Englishwomen for the action of the English government, we threw ourselves energetically into the cause of freedom. On the outbreak of the war, an informal meeting of the lady managers was called at the infirmary to see what could be done towards supplying the want of trained nurses so widely felt after the first battles. A notice of this meeting to be held at the infirmary, having accidentally found its way into the New York Times, the parlors of the infirmary were crowded with ladies to the surprise of the little group of managers. The Reverend Dr. Bellows and Dr. Alicia Harris being present, a formal meeting was organized. Whilst the great and urgent need of a supply of nurses was fully recognized, it was also felt that the movement would be too vast to be carried on by so small an institution. A letter was therefore drafted on this occasion, calling for a public meeting at the Cooper Institute, and a committee of the ladies present was appointed to obtain signatures to this call. The meeting at the Cooper Institute was crowded to overflowing. The National Sanitary Aid Association was then formed in order to organize the energetic efforts to help that were being made all over the country. The Ladies' Sanitary Aid Association, of which we were active members, was also formed. This branch worked daily at the Cooper Institute during the whole of the war, it received and forwarded contributions of comforts for the soldiers zealously sent from the country, but its special work was the forwarding of nurses to the seat of war. All that could be done in the extreme urgency of the need was to sift out the most promising women from the multitudes that applied to be sent on as nurses, 
put them for a month in training at the Great Bellevue Hospital of New York, which consented to receive relays of volunteers, provide them with a small outfit, and send them on for distribution to Miss Dix, who was appointed superintendent of nurses at Washington. The career of one of these nurses, a German, deserves recording. We hesitated about receiving her on account of her excitable disposition, but she insisted on going. This feeble-looking woman soon drifted away from the Washington depot to the active service of the front. After the Battle of Gettysburg, she spent two days and nights on the field of slaughter, wading with men's boots in the blood and mud, pulling out the still-living bodies from the heaps of slain, binding up hideous wounds, giving a draft of water to one, placing a rough pillow under the head of another, in an enthusiasm of beneficence which triumphed equally over thought of self and horror of the hideous slaughter. A welcome relief to the great tension of life during those years was the visit of Mr. Herman Bicknell, F.R.C.S., who was traveling in America after the death of his wife. I remembered him as a fellow student of the St. Bartholomew's days who sat by me in the lecture room, and he recalled many interesting reminiscences of that eventful time. He was a man of great, though eccentric, talent, and a clever Persian scholar, having resided long in the East. His cordial friendship during many later years was much prized and continued until his premature death. It was not until this great national rebellion was ended that the next step in the growth of the infirmary could be taken. The infirmary service of young assistant physicians, which had been hitherto supplied by students whose theoretical training had been obtained elsewhere, no longer met the New York needs. In 1865, the trustees of the infirmary, finding that the institution was established in public favor, applied to the legislature for a charter conferring college powers upon it. They took this step by the strong advice of some of the leading physicians of New York interested in the infirmary, who urged that the medical education of women should not be allowed to pass into the hands of the irresponsible persons who were at that time seeking to establish a woman's college in New York. We took this step, however, with hesitation for our own feeling was adverse to the formation of an entirely separate school for women. The first women physicians connected with the infirmary, having all been educated in the ordinary medical schools, felt very strongly the advantage of admission to the large organized system of public instruction already existing for men and also the benefits arising from association with men as instructors and companions in the early years of medical study. They renewed their efforts, therefore, to induce some good recognized New York school to admit, 
under suitable arrangements, a class of students guaranteed by the infirmary, rather than add another to the list of female colleges already existing. Finding, however, after consultation with the different New York schools, that such arrangements could not at present be made, the trustees followed the advice of their consulting staff, obtained a college charter, and opened a subscription for a college fund. The use of a spacious lecture room in the New York University on Washington Square was temporarily obtained until the house adjoining the infirmary could be leased and fitted for college purposes. Footnote. The fine property on Stuyvesant Square at the corner of East 15th Street has since been purchased and is now the site of the New York Infirmary and College. End footnote. A full course of college instruction was gradually organized with the important improvement of establishing the subject of hygiene as one of the principal professorial chairs, thus making it an equal as well as obligatory study. Another important improvement adopted was the establishment of an examination board, independent of the teaching staff, a plan not then customary in the United States. This board was composed of some of the best-known members of the profession, and at the same time we changed the ordinary term of medical study from three years to four. During the early years of the college, I occupied the chair of hygiene and had the pleasure of welcoming Miss Jex Blake, then visiting America, as a member of the first class. The professor of hygiene also superintended the important work of the sanitary visitor at the homes of the poor. It has always seemed to me, during many years of active private practice, that the first and constant aim of the family physician should be to diffuse the sanitary knowledge which would enable parents to bring up healthy children. The most painful experience which I met with in practice was the death of one of my little patients from the effects of vaccination. This baby, though carefully tended and the lymph used guaranteed pure, died from the phagedenic ulceration set up by vaccination in a rather scrofulous constitution. To a hygienic physician thoroughly believing in the beneficence of nature's laws, to have caused the death of a child by such means was a tremendous blow. This serious experience awakened a growing distrust as to the wisdom of all medical methods which introduce any degree of morbid matter into the blood of the human system a distrust which no amount of temporary professional opinion or doubtful statistics has been able to remove. Although I have always continued to vaccinate when desired, I am strongly opposed to every form of inoculation of attenuated virus as an unfortunate though well-meaning fallacy of medical prejudice. End of chapter 6